Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. Today, we're joined by adventure photographer Dan Milner, whose work has taken him to the farthest corners of the globe, capturing the beauty and the challenge and the nuances of expedition life on bikes. We're going to get straight into it. So I'm your host, Marcus Brown, and this is the Osprey Podcast. Welcome to the Osprey Podcast. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined today by none other than Dan Milner. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with Dan on a number of occasions over the years. He is a editorial and commercial adventure photographer specialising in mountain bike adventure. His work has taken him from the likes of the Arctic Svalbard to Afghanistan to North Korea to the southernmost trail in the world. Um, and that is just the the tip of the Arctic Svalbardian iceberg, I suppose. Um, Dan, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much for, for having me on here. Um, I, I will give you the challenge of controlling my inner ramblings. Um, there's an awful lot to talk about, as you know. We've, we've spent a little bit of time together uh, over the last few years on photo shoots for Osprey, and you will know that once I get going, I, I can talk for England and more. Which is exactly so what I want. So feel free to cut so. me short. <laughs> I'd be... I'm, not, I'm not sure the... Ri- I'm not sure the listeners want that. Oh, but I beg to differ. I beg to differ. I will say this is kind of a ceremonious day for me in a way because it's unbelievably... You're episode 20, I think. Maybe 19. Okay. Pretty sure you're episode 20. And you're the first photographer that we've had on the podcast, which I feel is a great personal failing that it's taken this long, being a photographer, an image man myself. But um, I'm very excited that that you're here. And, you know, it makes sense that it would be you because um, you've been shooting for Osprey or, or with Osprey for 10 years? Over a decade, actually. About a decade, decade. yeah. Uh, how, so how did that kind of begin? Um, that that actually started because I, w- I had a trip to Nepal planned in 2009, and I was at uh, Eurobike. I think it was Eurobike. It might have been one of the out- other outdoor shows in Germany, and I I knew the brand and uh, I, I went up to the guy and said, hey, why don't you give us some packs to use on this trip to, to Nepal, which, they, which he did. Um, I was doing a couple of stories for some magazines from that trip. And then the following year, it, it went up a notch. We did a, I went back to Nepal the next year and rode a trail that went through the upper Mustang region, which is a restricted access area region, um, in the north, in the north uh, west of the Annapurnas, and it there's an, a trail that goes up through there that goes up to the Tibet border and back. And as far as we were aware, no other Westerners, no other foreigners, had really tried to ride this trail. So I organised a trip, and the basis of that one was actually to we'd I'd heard about a road they were going to bulldoze a road through that area, which is absolutely um, you know. Uh, totally permissible. I mean, it changes the lives of the people there, makes makes life a lot easier for the locals. Um, but I thought this was this risk destroying this trail. So I ran back the following year and shot a story for Bicycling Magazine in America uh, based on riding this trail before it got destroyed. Now, the trail actually does still exist. The road hasn't destroyed the, a lot of that trail. Um, but... 
part of that was that I think that was the first commercial work I did with Osprey was 2010. Um, was a set of images from that trip that got used for, for sort of Osprey marketing stuff on the on the packs at that time, and then we kicked off starting doing dedicated shoots for Osprey uh, the following year. Actually, oh, nice! It's been so it was straight into mostly it, until until the whole world went a bit strange on yeah. us. Um, it <laughs> it was ticking along quite nicely. So how have you found the last kind of twelve months? I think for photographers. It's probably one of the industries that's been hit heaviest. I mean, it's hard to say that because I think every industry has been impacted so heavily, but apart from maybe toilet roll. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we are, um, yeah, as, from a creative side of things, that's that's probably been the hardest. I mean, there's as, a, as predominantly a travel photographer, it has been obviously very, very hard mm. uh, to make, to bring in any money um, and actually earn anything. I've, you know, last year when when things relaxed after the first set of lockdowns and certainly the bike and the outdoor industry realized that, Hey, everybody actually still wants to go out and do things when they get chance. And I, you know, and that's, that's a good side. If there is a good side from, from this whole debacle it is that people have realized the worth and the value of getting outdoors and, and properly realized it. Mm. And a lot of people have been getting outdoors that never, ever, really found the outdoors before beyond sort of the, the stadium and the football pitch and things like that, which is absolutely brilliant because you've got a whole new set of people going outdoors and finding the value in it and finding the value in nature and losing themselves amongst mountains and hills and, and just discovering all this stuff that, you know, I was lucky to do as a kid. So, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's been a, it's a pretty, pretty interesting and challenging year. I, I ended up squeezing about three or four months worth of work into a six-week period last Oof. year, a really intense set of photo shoots. Everybody wants oh, things doing, press camps and, and product shoots. Uh, as far as the kind of the remote trips go, obviously there's a lot of stuff sitting on the back burner, which is quite hard for me because I tend to plan things. I, I come up with an idea and, and that might take a year to, to formulate a plan. It might take a couple of months. It might take two years. Some of my projects will take two or three years to really research and and fully plan before we can commit to doing a trip. And so, and every year I get new ideas. I get inspiration from all sorts of places. It might be a photograph on a wall in a restaurant or in a dentist's waiting room or what have you. You know, I'll see a picture and say, wow, look at that. Look at those mountains, look at those trees, look at whatever that trail is. There's got to be a way of doing story by going there. So each year I tend to add to that list. So I've got the stuff from last year still waiting to shoot, the stuff that was kind of lining up for this year being put back again, and the stuff already, new ideas coming in. So it's it's been challenging in that side, um, trying to be very, very patient and formulate a lot of plans. But probably the hardest bit is is keeping the creativity going. Mm. I've been immersing myself in my own photo projects, mostly documenting kind of derelict um, ski structures and things in the Alps, just trying to uh, – I mean, that's been good, uh, but it's it's nice. It's funny how you get used to having deadlines and having photo briefs, and when they're removed from you, your creativity – having to find it just for yourself is actually a lot harder. Mm. <laughs> Sounds crazy, but it, it's true. It sort of forces you 
back to square one in a way, doesn't it? Where you're, you're just left with, I mean, it's a very common trope that, you know, often what makes things easier is when you're restricted to certain parameters and you have to create within those parameters. Um, I, I remember in a, yeah, you know, a classic like early video exercise for people first getting into video is shoot an entire thing on a tripod, don't have any motion in the camera. Um, and that restriction gives you stuff to work with. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, having having... <laughs> In a way, you've got restrictions added in that you can't travel, but in another way, it's like there's just nothing. There are no restrictions. There's no direction, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, things are moving now. We've I'm, I'm fully vaccinated, nice. so I'm sort of waiting for the nod for borders to open. We've got a couple of plans in the pipeline for later this year uh, to places like Rwanda, Wow. Uh, that are actually very safe at the moment. But everything, you know, everything is changing so fluidly. But at the same time, I can only say we've been incredibly lucky uh, being in the West, being in a place where the vaccines, vaccine rollout has been quite quick. And, you know, things, things have happened. We've, we've got stability and we've got relative stability. And we've got financial support, things going on from governments that, most of the places I ended up sending over money to a to a guide that a, that I knew uh, in Ethiopia from a trip years ago that was absolutely desperate just before Christmas when when this kind of a civil war blew up out of nowhere when not really out of nowhere I mean it's been brewing um, in the north of the country and you know these people have really got it tough so mm. yeah it, we can say it's a, it's a tragic situation for a lot of people I can only say that well. The fact that I don't have a bit of work is, is the least of least of the problems in the world. I got to say, uh, it will come back, and I hope I just remember where the on-off button on the camera is. <laughs> That'll help. What? How would you describe your photographic style? And and what are some of the dark kind of, and moody? Love it. What are some of the like <laughs> key themes that run across your work? Would you say? Yeah. The, it, that's actually quite an interesting, it was really interesting question because I've had to sort of look at that myself quite closely in the last sort of four to six months. I've been entering more and more photography competitions, uh, mostly kind of street photography and travel photography competitions. It's something I've never really focused very hard on. And part of that is is needing to pull together an artist statement, which is mm. kind of your evaluation and your statement about the direction of your work and and i suppose it's uh it's kind of a reflection on where and how i've been working predominantly for companies under quite tight photo briefs and a lot of editorial work that is my interpretation of the story that we're going to shoot somewhere on an adventure and i've never really had to think about that question how do you describe your work what is it that makes you tick why are you why do you take these photos and suddenly i found myself oh i've got to pull together this this piece and it made me think very hard about it and so i'm i think the easiest way to describe it is yeah there is a there is a strong theme of being quite dark and moody i'm i'm i use shadows and silhouettes a lot this kind of thing when i can get away with it when brands are not insistent on being hmm. able to see the, the product or the label. And yeah. a lot of it is very contextual. I, I like to put things in context and I like to put things, I like to put my subject into a, into a scene that wants the viewer to ask questions 
of that scene. I don't want to just shoot a nice landscape for the sake of it with a mountain bike or a hiker or something mm-hmm. coming through it. I want there to be something. There's a context to that that adds to the story that says, okay, well, this isn't just a scene. There's a big waterfall there. There's big cliffs. There's drama in it. You've got to bring all these elements into that picture, I think, for that picture to have an impact. And that, whether that's for a catalogue or whether that's for a, you know opening spread of a story. And I've noticed a lot of the travel stuff that I shoot, a lot of the portraits, a lot of the other stuff that I've been going out and shooting the last two or three years specifically, there's a lot of sort of, I can use the word juxtaposition here because that makes me sound really intelligent and arty, but <laughs> it, it has a juxtaposition in it in as much as you're presenting a scene that has detail in it that actually asks the, ask, gets the viewer to ask questions subconsciously often. And so I like to create images that stir emotions. This is basically what it comes down to. And I think an image should should stir something. It doesn't necessarily mean everybody will like the image. Some people might hate it, but that's just as valid, I think. The worst thing you could ever do is make pictures that are mediocre. Everybody goes, yeah, that's nice, lovely, <laughs> and then moves on to the next one, swipes swipes left or up or right or whatever you, whichever way you're meant to swipe nowadays, <laughs> I don't know. What would you say is the um, the sort of the unique thing about being an adventure photographer? Because it, obviously it's going to come with its own, um, well, some of them fairly obvious challenges, like the fact you've got to put your bike on your back every now and again and climb over some rocks or whatever. Um, but what are the sort of broader um, uniqueties, if that was a word, mm. um, about that form of photography? I like that word, uniquity. I'm going to use that. Hashtag uniquity <laughs> sounds good. Um, the well, I think I mean that all boils down to really definition of adventure, and I don't want to dive in too deeply into this one. I've written right written some quite big pieces on this for magazines, um, but I mean people popularly see it adventurous being it's it's kind of defined. They they see it as that sort of bear grills. They see it as that like people dragging sledges across the Antarctic, you know, to the South Pole and things like this. But those are expeditions. They are adventures, but they're expeditions. And adventure itself, to me, all that that needs to do is have unknowns in it. So it is defined by having an unknown outcome. That's what changes going traveling to becoming Mm. an adventure. And it doesn't matter what level. And the most important bit on that is it doesn't matter what level you're at to find that adventure. Everybody has their own comfort zone. Everybody has their own level of acceptance of of how far they want to push it. But that fact that there are unknowns involved means that it challenges your comfort zone wherever that's at. It, it, It also means you're going to come out of it learning something about the situation you went through and how you dealt with it. So it's a bit the same with uh, being a photographer on adventure trips. Most of my adventure trips, I've done a lot of adventure stuff since um, kicking off from, I mean, beyond Europe in sort of 1989, traveling around South America on my own with, armed with a camera and a backpack and diving into some quite heavy political situations, which were quite fun, uh, and coming out with pictures and bruises and tear gas, kind of blurry eyes and things like this. Um, so... The main thing there is is it's it is just about the unknown. So the fact that you're on an adventure and your your job is to document it, ask the photographer 
still means that you're facing then those unknowns. And the the biggest challenge I think is is deciding on a on a moment by moment basis that how you're going to document that, how you are going to tell the story of this challenge that of getting from A to B, whether it's on a bike, whether it's hiking, whether it's snowboarding in Svalbard and camping out in the Arctic among polar bears that we've done, these kind of things. And so the biggest challenge is just you can go there, you can think you can go there with the best brief and the best the best preconceived ideas how you're going to tell that story but very few of those actually play out Mm. so it's a matter of just being able to react on a moment-to-moment basis and decide how to tell that story how to frame that picture how to keep shooting when things go wrong how to find the energy to do so so that i mean we can dive into each of those separately and and explore them but overall that's those are the challenges of being an adventure photographer. Your your job is to document that. And I think it's of getting a balance between, especially when it comes to editorial, or when you're shooting for brands that wanted a want a flavor of adventure in their images, mm. then it's really about documenting the challenge on one side and telling the story and also inspiring the viewer to go and want to find their own adventure wherever and whatever level that adventure is there's no wrong or right to it all it has to do is just get you outside and go and do something it's it's interesting hearing you say about having certain um you could imagine someone having a, a mental checklist in their head of certain images they want to have before one of these trips do you typically have those things or or do you sometimes just go in completely blind going well i have no idea what's going to happen here so i'm just going to shoot as we go and just see um you know do you have a sort of a shot list in mind a lot of the time yeah not not really actually um what you tend to find i think years and years ago especially and this is really really common people will see and you'll see it all over instagram if you follow any of the travel or the sites or the street photography sites then you will see the same shot that somebody has just gone and reproduced in their, slightly in their own way, but a lot of them are really, really similar. And you get the same mm. uh, when you're learning photography, you will get inspired. You'll see that travel shot. You'll see that landscape of the waves, you know, the milky sea all on slow slow shutter speed all blurred out. And those are absolutely <laughs> beautiful shots. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I love them. And I, if I could be patient enough, I'd probably take some myself. But the point is that, you go through this process of saying, oh, I'm inspired by that, and you want to take that picture. And we, and I'll still see pictures from, from some leading street photographers, and I say, I, I battle between I want to take that picture and realising that I don't actually want to take that picture. I just want to be inspired by that picture, and I want to look at that picture mm-hmm. and say, what is it that's captivating me about, say, Martin Parr's work in street stuff or, I don't know, certain other adventure photographers that I look at and it's about working that out and saying well what is the what is the story what is the element that that, that's being brought out of that where is the emotion in that picture and how and and it and I might walk away from that from analyzing that picture and and actually say well 
they're they have a different style to me they it doesn't apply to you know i'm not going to be influenced by that but you do get influenced by other pictures we're surrounded we're bombarded by images mm. thousands and thousands of images subconsciously every single day of our lives and it's impossible not to be influenced by those and that's how marketing works we know that and so i on a trip say i don't know we we did a trip to iraq iraq Kurdistan, Kurdish Iraq, semi-autonomous region in the north of Iraq, um, just not not long before the first the first COVID came through, and um, you know it's impossible. I didn't really know much about the country other than I shared a, a flat with a Kurdish student back in the nineteen eighties, and he taught me how to make rice really really well, which has stayed with me. And so I had this; I'd been sowed this seed of 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 inspiration i was like this is a country that mm. i have, don't really know much about apart from the conflicts that have gone on there and the saddam hussein stuff and all this heavy stuff and so when it came about that we had the opportunity to to go and do a bike trip there and explore the trails of kurdistan i jumped to the opportunity mostly because i don't really know it and that that's what drives me i'm really driven to go to places that i don't know and by not knowing them, it's really impossible to put together a shot list. We don't know what is going to come up, what opportunities and what situations are going to come up. And that's where your experience that you of being in those situations, of your photography, of being comfortable photographing people or situations as they arise, that's where it pays because that's where it comes into its own because you can work out diplomatically, is this still a is this still a, a clever place to, to bring my camera up to my eye or should I really just put this down, you know, if, when things start to get a bit fiery? Not that they did in Kurdistan, but um, it does happen. And so it's impossible to go with a shot list, I think. You could, you, you tend to rely on your own experience so you know that in certain situations, if you come across a really beautiful part of the trail on bikes, you know this this kind of angle or this kind of thing is going to work because you need to come back with enough st- enough photos to build a story for the magazines. You know the, these stories that I do get published in five, six, seven magazines around the world. So and each one will want their own certain, slightly different style to the mm. the story they want to tell visually. So yeah, it's it's pretty impossible to have a shot list, and I and I certainly would never try and take a shot list i think it's it, unless you've got certain product that you need to shoot in a certain way then the adventure yeah. stuff is just things things happen deal with it and find a way of documenting it is essentially the the, the ethos there i did a trip to uh scotland a couple of years ago now um and we did we canoed the great glen canoe trail i saw um, that yeah was, yeah, that. so it's basically um, uh, where do we go? Uh, Inverness to Benavi via Loch Ness, mm-hmm. um, Loch Lochie, Loch Oik. Yeah, all the canals in between. Beautiful, beautiful scenery. I I went in knowing I wanted one particular image, and it was yeah. it was inspired by um, the Lord of the Rings, which was certainly my favourite films as a kid. Um, <laughs> you know, me and every other child my age um yeah yeah it's it's up there yeah (laughs) um and i i had this particular image where you know the bit where they're canoeing it towards the end of the fellowship of the ring 
and they have this beautiful shot yes. looking down on them as they're going and they're looking up at the yes. I can't remember what they're called, but the two giant statues that they Yeah, the big float statues, between. yes. Um the gate yeah. gates of something, I think they might be called. And they have this beautiful shot looking down on them, paddling, looking up at these giant giant statues. And I was like, that's the shot I want. Now I can't get slightly above and look down, but I could be in the boat, yeah. in the front of the boat, turn yeah. around, click. Um, and that was like the one thing I knew I wanted and I thought it's going to take all the it's going to take the whole trip of like constantly trying to repeat it before I get the one I really like and then we started and the first morning there was this beautiful layer of fog hovering over the water it was this really really stunningly gloomy morning but incredibly calm we were expecting a lot Loch Ness this was we were going on to Loch Ness for the first time this morning mm-hmm. and we were expecting it to be really choppy because we'd heard that it's because it's so big the wind can really mm. whip up quite quite large it waves it can be yeah. Um, yeah and then we got onto it and it was just a mill pond it was just complete still right. glass just completely static amazing um, and it was stunning the reflections were amazing and then I took one shot of my cousin paddling behind me and I was like great that's that's that done <laughs> five minutes into the trip now what <laughs> and i suddenly realized i had no idea what the story was going to be i had no idea what else what else to do um and i was at a bit of a loose end so i yeah. sort of found out the hard way that you, you have to be very reactive on these sorts of things yeah you do absolutely and you know things like that weather that the weather is the one thing that you have mm. really little control over well, no control over i mean in certain destinations you can predict what the weather's going to be and, and pretty much be able to work with it but uh yeah i mean that's why a lot of the places we go uh, or the shoots i do we, I, we try and stay up high on mountains overnight in one way or another it could be bivouacking out or it could be in a refuge and part of that is just so that we can access that first light and last light without without having to hike or carry bikes you know for two hours before we get to that light and so it's yeah it's it is it is about being reactive that's that's definitely that is that would you say that's one of the differences between when you're doing the kind of editorial pieces for the magazine where the the feature is more the adventure compared to the more commercial stuff where you're focusing more on product is that does it differ there yeah i think yeah there's definitely a difference um obviously with photo shoots i wish well I was going to say, I wish we could control the weather on those as well. But imagine if we could control the weather. It'd be what an awful world we'd have. <laughs> hey, I mean, that would be the worst thing. I know people are trying to, but this would just be this is not what we should be doing on this planet is controlling the weather. <laughs> anyway, the yeah, it's yeah. Obviously, with photo shoots, we some companies give me quite a tight brief, and other ones don't. Other ones are just like what I do and they say we want a certain percentage of these kind of shots and and mm. Dan please no more than 10% of tiny people on ridges we can't <laughs> use them that much you know we can't see the product uh and editorial well the editorial side tends to be the only rather than having a shot list we will have a pre conceived idea of the story we're trying to tell so we will have pitched that out for funding from brands to back and send riders on uh, or we will go there with a certain it could just be we're going to a place to explore the trails nobody's done it before as it was with afghanistan or kurdistan some of those kind of uh, locations um 
and North Korea, certainly. I mean, North Korea, we had, we had zero idea of really what we were going to photograph or what we were really going to be allowed to photograph mm. for 12 days in the country. And so we, t- but in other ones, we will have formulated a, an idea of the story that we're going, the backstory, if you like, the reason for us going, it, and it may be from going from A to B to cross something, that in itself, that expedition feel, uh, the first people to try and ride bikes across wherever it is uh, from A to B, or it could just be something that's a, more of a social, political backstory about, like in Lesotho in Africa, I did a really lovely, absolutely amazing country, such a welcoming, but incredibly poor, cash poor country. And they don't have the they don't have the big five game animals that Botswana and South Africa that are nearby have. So they don't have any safari tourism. So really, I mean, it's this just this it's enclave country that's absolutely stunning, fantastic people, brilliant setup that is really needed to turn towards adventure tourism to for a bit of to to try and bring in tourists there, foreign tourist um, money, you know. Foreign tourist money is hugely important in a lot of these countries, and that's partly the you know what COVID has done to a lot of these economies, tourist-based economies, not outside of Europe. I mean, Europe and so on have been suffering, but obviously countries like Lesotho and, and Ethiopia that have started to rely a lot more on it, tourism have suffered a lot harder. So Lesotho, the story was really, let's go and see, and let's go and see what the potential is for adventure tourism in this country and do a story that that is focused around that and not every magazine wants to be, run a story like that obviously a lot of magazines just want yeehaw woohoo we're riding down a trail this is <laughs> slash and burn we're this is great fun we're here. but um a lot more of the magazines that i do work for are, are looking for deeper substance and yeah. more meaning in the stories and reason for us to go there so you'll go you might go with a uh, sort of a backstory already outlined, and that may may help direct my time when I'm there. I may go looking for certain situations. I may want to. I may ask around locally and ask to be to see inside people's houses, or I'll hear about an opportunity of being welcomed into people's houses, and I'll insist that we go there instead of going to the four star hotel. You know, the, these kind of opportunities, which I'd always rather stay in a person's <laughs> homestay than a four star hotel, anyway. But so, yeah, they can they can shape and help shape your time when you're on location, when you're on these adventures. But a lot of the time you you just don't know what's going to come up and you don't know how how you're going to document it. And you've got to, like I said before, you've got to realize that you have the ability to do so. Probably the biggest challenge with that is actually keeping energy levels high enough to do so mm. and we get this on commercial shoots you you'll know this one mark where middle of the afternoon you've been up since sunrise you're working your way through the list and before middle sunrise. of the afternoon <laughs> yeah before sunrise <laughs> and you're to get up to the top for sunrise and you're working your way through a list of shots and then everybody's turning to you and saying right what do you want us to do next and you just got to say that mate we need to just sit down for half an hour have a cup of tea, have a nice energy snack, and then get my head together. Because you lose energy mm. trying to be creative for that long. And it's the same on 
on adventures. So the adventure thing, there's this, I remember coming across something a few years ago where it was a, it was a photojournalist, um, one of the Magnum photographers, I think, that said, you need to, you need to remove yourself from the arena, really. You need to stay, to, to stay objective. If you're going to be a good photojournalist, you need to stay objective rather than subjective, which means you put space between yourself and the subjects and you're an onlooker documenting what plays out before you. You don't play any part in, in shaping it or being part of how it unfolds. And that's, that's a nice idea. And I can, I get that for, for a lot of photojournalism. I'm not talking about them removing themselves in a way that they don't, they're not emotionally connected or immersed in any way, but that's impossible to do when you're on an adventure and you're, you know, if I was riding along on a motorbike, following them, following my mountain bikers, for example, that may be easier. I can jump ahead and document them coming through and mm. so on and so forth. But when you're actually carrying your bike for six hours up a mountain at 5,000 meters, you're as knackered as the riders and you're carrying a, a more kit usually than a lot of them. And you're trying to get ahead of these guys who are half your half your age nowadays and uh, twice as fit because they're actually paid to mountain bike rather than paid to take pictures. And you have all these challenges unfold in front of you of, right, I need to document this, but I need to do it in an authentic way and I'm suffering and I've got to get ahead of them to this peak to document them coming to this peak. <laughs> and all these extra challenges start unfolding and it's impossible to be objective. You you are immersed in it. You're so subjective that at times, you know, we've had situations where I think, do I put my camera down and help, or do I just keep shooting? We're trying to we're trying to pass bikes across a raging river that is threatening to sweep us down the mountainside mm. to our deaths. Do I shoot this or do I lend a hand? You know. And it's probably why I'd make a really bad conflict uh, photographer, you know, war <laughs> photographer. I, w- I would probably just <laughs> want to get stuck in and help. You know, if somebody was <laughs> some tragic scene unfolded in front of me, I'll get my arms dirty and, and be like rummaging and pulling people out of trouble and things like that rather than actually documenting it. And that's, you know, those are different skill sets. But the adventure thing, yeah, it's, it's very much, you're very immersed in it. It's impossible to remove yourself. Mm. And at the end of the day, when you arrive at camp, for example, after a 14-hour trudge um, facing blizzards and what have you, you've got to f- still find that energy to pick up a camera and try and document everybody there as they tuck into start eating food. And, you're, and somebody's giving you food and you're saying, I'm going to leave that for the moment while I still photograph this. Well, you're absolutely ridden with hunger. So these kind of, there are definitely some challenges, they, yeah. it, and it, I, that side of things I don't think gets really gets any easier to manage, mm. even with experience. This is just basic your art, your desire for art and to do the job versus basic bodily functions like nourishment and energy, and they they're quite a difficult one to to balance actually. Yeah, and I guess there must be um, you know even with the less dramatic situations, if you're trying to get somewhere specific by nightfall for example anytime you pull out the camera mm. you're adding time 
So there must be, yes. a, you know, every time you pull the trigger, there must be these sorts of considerations going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's another major, major part of it, especially on an A to B, point to point kind of multi-day adventure through the middle of nowhere. Um, there was a time actually on the Afghanistan one, I think it was around day 10 of day of the 12 day um, traverse we did through the Wakan corridor in 2013. And we ended up, the light was getting quite low. We came over this kind of ridge and the light was just start popping. You know, us, uh, we photographers get very excited when the, when the light, when the sun gets low in the sky and <laughs> orange hues are, uh, dancing around everything you know these are the these are the things that the shots you know are really going to sell that story and really turn heads and so we started working this section of trail Matt Hunter the rider Canadian rider he was riding it and re-riding it and I'd and I'd find a different angle and I'd say yeah we'll do another one here and we'll carve this turn here and and little did we know that our support crew, the locals with the yaks or donkeys or what have you that, that had all our kit on, had carried on. And they were trying to get to the – there was one village. This is a semi-nomadic herding herder area region, and there's no real permanent settlements up there. Oh, wow. We'd done 10, through, 10 days through this, this area already, camping each night. It was getting down to sort of minus five at night. Oof. And um, – we turned around. We said, okay, well, we'll wrap it now. We've spent about an hour there shooting all these pictures with this dust all backlit and so on. And turned around and just said, oh, we don't actually know where our crew have gone. Oh, and God. we looked across this horizon and we saw these, these, we saw nobody. There's just a trail went down and then it fanned out into like a braided trail that just disappeared in all directions across this plateau. And in the distance were these little licks of smoke rising into the sky there were probably about 10 different licks of smoke coming from different settlements these are the first settlements we come to in 10 days and uh and we we didn't know which one to go and we were about 20 minutes off it getting dark and dropping to minus five and it was going to be freezing oh, and uh so we 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 legged it down this mountainside and started getting out there and we just barked orders to everybody like well, you ride in that direction, we'll ride in this direction, and whoever finds them first, you've got to come back and find us. And and luckily, we, we sort of got quite close to this village and uh, one of these settlements, and our cook, he was like the, the best fixer, helper we could ever – Armin Beg, his name is, and he was a cook that we, we hired locally to cater for us for this trip. And he was so up for looking after us. He had a, he had our backs. He just came running out. He was running up the, back up this trail, trying to find us, just panicking that he'd lost us. Eventually, you know, he found us and led us to safety into this place. We were so happy to see him. So yeah, I mean, it, time shooting pictures. There's always a gamble involved that you've got to calculate. You've got to be aware of how long it takes to take these pictures. And get mm. really get the belter of a picture. Sometimes it's just a couple of minutes. Sometimes you can. It spend always takes longer than you minutes. think, doesn't it? It does take longer. It certainly takes longer with filmers, with video guys, uh, understandably, because mm. there's a lot more going on with moving pictures than just a, a still. A still, still guys, we have it relatively lucky, you know, compared to the video guys. And so when we have a videographer along on these trips, which isn't, which is probably nowadays about fifty percent of the trips that I do. Um, then, yeah, sometimes I have to nudge them and say, mate, I know we've spent an hour and a half getting this 
one firm turn shot, but we we don't know how long it's going to take because we've got another 20 kilometers. We've got another 600 meters of climbing. I don't know. It, we don't, don't know how long it's going to take to get there. We need to wrap this and move on. And then obviously around the corner, I'll be the one going, oh, look at this shot. <laughs> right, I'm going to pull my camera out. And the video guy's like, oh, come on. You just told us to move. So, yeah, it's you. that's the thing. You don't know what's coming. Uh, a lot of the time you'll stop at spots as you're riding a bike because I'm on a bike as well. Um, it's just a difference. Sometimes on commercial shoots, I'll be on foot because it's actually a lot easier and quicker for me just mm. to move around on foot than keep going back and picking up a bike. But on these point-to-point trips, then I'm on a bike and I'm riding my bike along with sort of this 180-degree peripheral vision, just spot trying to spot like a crazy owl on a bike, just sort of viewing the whole landscape in front of me rather than just the trail that I'm on. So I'm not really riding how I really want to ride most of the time. And I'm just trying to spot photo opportunities, especially in those first two or three hours of the day and the last three hours of the day. That's where the light is popping. And you have to make that assessment. I'll stop and say, right, I, this felt like it has something going on. I'll jump off the bike and have a quick run around the hillside and say, okay. And that, a lot of the riders I, I know have uh, worked with me a few times or they'll, they'll, they'll just wait patiently and they know that there's not going to be a shot until my helmet comes off. If I take my helmet off, because I hate shooting with a helmet on, because the camera always bumps yeah. the peak of the helmet. So I'll take the, sh- the helmet off. If they see the helmet come off, they'll be like, yep, we know there's a shot. That's it. <laughs> He's decided there's a shot to do. But yeah, it can take it can take a few minutes. It could take 20 minutes to get a shot on this one spot. And sometimes they don't always work, but you've got to realize that what should perhaps be a four or five hour ride can become a 10 hour ride quite easily when you're documenting it. Yeah, there sure. must also be quite a few frustrating moments where you realise you you have to let a shot go that you really want to get. Yeah, that's it does happen. It tends to be on the actual adventure side of things. That's quite, it's very rare. Sometimes it happens when my riders are ahead of me. I might have said, hey, you know, we need to cover some ground now. And the riders will just set a pace mm. that I just, I just can't keep up with, not with my, my old knees. <laughs> And so I'll, I'll be pottering along, along behind, slow and steady. That's how I call my riding style. <laughs> so I'll be, I'll be heading along and yeah, sure enough, we'll get to, I'll get to a spot and I'll just think, oh, this would have, this would have made a great shot. And, and it's totally understandable. Riders are not, they, they're not the creatives mm. that we see. A lot of them are actually, a lot of them are really great photographers are, are really great at spotting shots as well, but a lot of them are not there to their focus is on riding, which is what they're being paid to do. So sometimes we'll miss a shot. Usually it's more often um, in a, in a place at the end or the beginning of the trip when I'm in a town and I see a street scene and I perhaps missed it or something played out, played out in front of me and I didn't quite get it. And I, afterwards I think, Oh, that would have been amazing. But, and I, and I beat myself up a lot about, about missing shots. If I do, um, if I, I come back from something and say, why didn't I document that grueling bit there? Why did I not document mm. the the snowdrift blowing through someone's tent? That's because I was helping dig it out or because I was run out of energy because we've been going for 15 hours. And I just, and my friend who's a photographer here, he, he shoots a lot of high-end commercial stuff for car, car companies and so on. And he said, 
no, you just don't beat yourself up about it. It's like you're immersed in this thing. You're you're suffering the same as everybody else. You can't you can't yeah. be expected to capture every shot. But I'm a perfectionist, so if I do miss a shot, then yeah, it's uh, it does wind me up. That's for sure. I'll 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 put it to my therapist next time I see her. <laughs> I guess it's uh, you know you sort of have to be willing to recognize that you now with hindsight is not necessarily the same you as you know the knackered one after the 15 hours of hiker biking and and trekking that's a very good point i've not actually thought about that yeah with the hindsight of being in your back days later in the comfort of your own home and you're looking through the stuff and saying oh i wish i'd shot more of this yeah you've got to remind yourself what it was like at that moment where sometimes you know you you got a camera in your hands you your hands are so cold and numb you can't actually feel i did a shoot recently i can't actually feel the the shutter <laughs> I, I cannot feel pressing the shutter my hands oh, are so numb and i'm i'm pretty good with hands i've i've always had jobs that have cold hands i used to work for the national rivers authority years ago in, in oh. the uk doing pollution control work and so my hands were always in and out of water mm. all, all year long and and i used to do boat surveys and stuff so I've always had cold hands or got used to cold hands, so I don't feel it. But, yeah, I can't remember what the job was now, but we were shooting. To, oh, yeah, it was. Uh, we did something getting through, um, getting into the Alp Duis. We did our own version of the Mega Avalanche where we hacked into the Alp Duis bike area by coming in from uh, neighbouring passes, calls nearby. Wow. And we did that last November when there was they just had some snow and so on and we were carrying bikes up through there and it was absolutely bolted but beautiful story and a great challenge it threw us a few curveballs including not being able to feel your hand enough to know if you're pressing the shutter which could have two outcomes you'll either end up with nothing or you'll end up with about ten thousand and three pictures of the same thing (laughs) um you mentioned in passing earlier on uh, not knowing what to expect from North Korea, what did you find? Mm. What were the answers to your to your? Oh, opinion? what an amazing, amazing experience that was! That was absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, we didn't. There are not that many photographers that have gone there. We went on, you know, we went on a tourist uh, visa trip where North Korea. Everything is planned, or, or rather, you can approach the North Korean agencies tourist agencies which are state state run and you can propose them and say we want to come to north korea we want to do trekking here or do this or we want to a lot most people just do a sort of cultural sightseeing trip and we as usual we thought well let's go and see if the bikes by taking mountain bikes and trying to ride some of these trails so a lot of them it's very mountainous and it has some really old trails that link between old Buddhist um, pagodas and Buddhist religious sites uh, in the mountains. And we thought, well, let's try and ride some of these and see how we get on. And let's see if the bikes, having bikes with us, breaks down the barriers with them. See see what that does. See how we're received by going with bikes. Generally, when I travel with bikes, it tends to, I say this a lot, uh, it tends to break down barriers because everybody can identify what a what a bike is. They, it doesn't matter whether your bike is a 50-quid supermarket bike or a $10,000 superbike. It doesn't matter. It's just a bike to most people. You're, you're, they're on two wheels. 
you've got there on your under your own steam. So there's a bit of respect and there's a bit of kind of sort of common identity going on. Mm. And of course, in North Korea, as with China, everybody rides bikes, e-bikes, normal bikes, everything. Right. Not mountain bikes, but they're riding these bikes in the city. And so, not mountain bikes at all. We didn't really know what to expect. No, there's our guide. He did turn up with his mountain bike for the last few days. He got very inspired by what we were doing. Awesome. He didn't actually ride it in front of us, but he, he put it on the last aeroplane to get to the, the last destination we were getting in the country, a very remote part up in the north, up against the, um, against the Chinese border. We spent a few days up there. So it's, yeah, we didn't really know. We didn't really know how much freedom we'd have with photography. And the first mm. Interestingly, the first thing they said to us are our two guides, fixers, minders, whatever you want to call them, who meet you as you get off the aeroplane and they're with you pretty much the whole your whole trip. They said, you can take photos of anything except military. We're happy. And that was genuinely pretty wow. much true. They were very, very relaxed. And there was none of this looking, checking your SD cards afterwards or looking at wanting to mm. see what you're taking pictures of. They just let you get on with it. And and what happened was that we said to the tourist agency, we want to do a trip here. We want a mountain bike. We want, Me and another, the Tom Bodkin from Secret Compass, we'd worked out the locations we wanted to go to. And so we put it to them and they arranged our itinerary to take us to those locations and spend the time we wanted in each one in the different, three or four different parts of the country and see if we could ride bikes on these trails our guides are on foot so that created quite an interesting dynamic that we were found ourselves on our own quite a lot of the time on the mountain and we've met a lot of north korean hikers family hikers you know just going out for the day and we would uh we could try and converse with them and high five with them and they'd laugh at our bikes and they'd take their own pictures of us riding our bikes and so on and so we had all these incredible interactions based on the bike side of things and with a lot of freedom to take pictures, it was actually really, really eye-opening trip, for sure. That's awesome. It, it's um, certainly not the kind of first place you'd necessarily think to um, to try and seek a mountain bike adventure. I mean, like you said, it's clearly not. You, it, it just, it just wouldn't enter your head, would yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it for mountain biking. <laughs> <laughs> no, and this is, this is, I mean, the trails are really steep yeah. and really technical. It has some potential there. I mean, you're, the first place we were in, it was a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and we were carrying up, basically you're just carrying your bikes up and then riding down. It's that steep, but wow. when it was dry, it was really fun. And then we had a big storm hit us for a couple of days there, a big typhoon, and it turned everything into the slipperiest trails I've ever tried to stand up right on. Absolutely Oof. almost impossible to, for me to ride down. Um, but it's, and that's, that's what has become a lot of my work is, taking bikes to these places because selling the bike stories, um, I'm so established in the bike press mm. that it's, it's relative, not easy, but it's, it has its challenges, but it's relatively easy to get these stories widely published and get funding for these trips. So I use them. I use the bikes as an excuse to go somewhere mm. and see something that if I was just going there and doing a travel story, I don't, I don't have the, the inroads into a lot of the mainstream travel mm. mags. I've, I've become quite niche. Uh, outside of that so i perhaps don't have the um funding to to go and see these places in any other way so i'll just say all right well let's let's do a bike trip there 
nobody's thought about doing it before, or if they have, they got put off by something. <laughs> to hell with that, getting put <laughs> off by obstacles. <laughs> no, we will overcome. We And if we don't, we will be carrying our bikes an awful lot. Have, have there been many um, plans, trips that you've ended up completely giving up on? No, there's. I can't think of any that we've actually gave up on. Um, That's impressive. And I think part of that is a willingness to uh, to push through. Mm. I am one of those people that will push through. I came close to quitting on a couple of on a couple of um, adventures. One was just in Italy in the Dolomites. I photographed an ultra ultra run ultra marathon running race for the North Face mm. a few years ago and went back to that same area, tried to ride the same circuit that they'd run, sort of a 100-kilometre circuit on the bike, took a couple of endurance, British endurance athletes with me. And I think we were about 15 hours into the first day and we'd climbed 3,000 metres and descended and we had still had like just under 2,500 metres. We still had 700 metres of up oh, to go God. and it was almost dark to reach the refuge. And I just said, you know what, that's bugger this we're <laughs> we're out of here this is we're just the story is we did a day and we got beaten and, and these guys are just absolute animals they, they, they ride 24-hour races so they just said don't worry down we'll get you up there we'll, <laughs> oh, we've got loads of energy gels and come on follow us we'll get up there so we're carrying our bikes up this mountainside with head torches to get to the refuge we got to the refuge at 11 o'clock at night and had to get the caretaker up to let us in who kindly gave us soup and wine which was a great combination nice. to finish a day Perfect. on. And I was happy. Yeah, I think I dropped more wine than soup, actually, <laughs> on that. Um, and then but I remember getting about two-thirds of the way up to this refuge and saying, mate, I am uh, I'm dead. I am, I'm absolutely finished now. This is, that's it. Because we're carrying everything for two days of, of living, you know, as well. And, and I said, uh, I need one of your gels, mate. And, and he turned to me and he said, oh, I've eaten them all. I've just been eating them all the way here. <laughs> so I had another hour to go. Oh. Like, oh, mate, really? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, um, we've, we've come close. Yeah. You have to dig deep. And I find on multi-day trips, especially that everybody's, everybody's point where they reach that, um, they have a reckoning moment where they say, mm. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It's usually around to do with energy levels and so on. And yeah. I tend to find a lot of people it's three days in. And for me, it tends to be around seven days in that I really hit my wall and say, that's my, that's my dip. That's usually when I say, what the hell are we doing this for? <laughs> Why are we usually here? it's only, I only have myself to blame because it's, it's me, my stupid idea and I've pitched it <laughs> and everybody's following me. So I, I suppose I as well really, as, um, I've got nobody to complain to. I suppose as well as being able to dig deep, whenever you need to it's also comes back to that flexibility thing isn't it and that responsiveness to be able to say even in that situation had you given up you still felt there was a story there because you said the story is uh you know we tried for a day and then we decided we just can't physically do this um so i suppose there's you know there's the two sides to that there's the digging deep and then also again just always being able to be responsive always being able to find the narrative even when they're, it, maybe it seems like you failed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, yeah, it's exactly that. You, you know, if you're beaten by something, you're beaten by it. That's just how it. That's just how it is. I mean, if if the world, if if adventurers uh, were never allowed to 
talk about the things they they didn't succeed in there there would be some very slim volumes out there i think and it's it's the same when i used to shoot a lot of snowboarding and skiing you know it's mm. we'll we'll find the most magnificent looking cliff cliff jump cliff jump that will be you know 10 meters high or something like this and the first time off it the the snowboarder bombs and they went through this point years ago it came from skateboarding where you you there was this big pressure that you couldn't publish photos unless they stuck the landing cleanly without without putting a hand down and this kind of thing and and it just got to this point they like if we if those are the only pictures we could run then snowboard magazines will be very very thin magazines with mm. hardly any pictures in them you've just got to accept that and it just moved on to a narrative that allowed you to actually include the other bomb holes below the cliff where people had already jumped once and hadn't got a clean landing yeah and just went up and hit it again but at least they went up and hit it again that's the story in it um we're going to move on to uh, a little experiment that i've not that i've not done before um I'm gonna. <laughs> I've made a selection of seven of your Instagram posts. I'm gonna pick three of those seven. Oh my word! I don't. Yeah. Well, I've got two Instagram channels. Yeah. So, so they've all come. Depends which ones you're gonna pull. They've from. all come from. I did. You know what? I only realised you had the second account today while I was doing this, <laughs> and I thought some of these would be really good. It's quite new. I saw don't the. Worry. Uh, I considered throwing in the the one of the cat on the bonnet. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> there is a yeah. There is a photo of a man driving around a. A plaza at night in Argentina in a jeep, uh, grinning like inanely out the window with a cat on a lead on the bonnet of his car. Absolutely the most ridiculous picture I've ever taken. <laughs> what's what's that account Fantastic. called? The things that one's called Pixelated Postcards. Pixelated Postcards. Follow that if you want to see some of the yeah, amazing um, that's, um, BTS stuff. Yeah, that's that's kind of my travel street adventure channel that's um, a little bit more general and has a bit more backstory to this stuff. The other, my main channel, Dan Me on a Photo, is more um, commercial and well, not commercial, it's like bike. It's, it, well, it's just generated such a big bike following. It's hard that you know how you're led by likes, aren't you? This is the this yeah. is. I wish they get rid of the likes because you can put up something you think is really interesting, and it only gets half the likes that a picture of a mountain biker does. And yeah. so um, you, I've you given tend, up, you tend given up caring to, at this point. I think if, if well, I like a, the shot, that's, a nice that's way to the be. main thing. <laughs> that's how it should be, which is more how the pixelated postcards thing is came about. Yeah, it's sure. like the channel that of the stuff I really want to put up rather than the stuff people are expecting mm. me to put up. So, so yeah, let's see what's, what, what have you chosen for me? Uh, I've chosen this one. It's, it's see. not one of your uh, most commercial shots, I suppose. Um, it is simply, I think, taken on a phone. Oh, yeah. And it's your hand within what I presume yeah. is a polar bear's poor footprint. It is snow. a polar It is. How, how, by, by the way, how are the listeners going to see these? Oh, you put them up on there? Uh, I, I can edit them in to a... Well, to be honest, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, right. that's the You're real answer to your question. But we'll figure it out in post. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Otherwise, it's like you know, it's like that thing when snooker, isn't it? Where they, if you years ago, and if you're watching in black and white, the red ball is just behind the yellow one. Now, was it actually a line in the snooker thing back when oh, there were black brilliant. and white televisions and color ones, and, it, and they wouldn't know which one you were watching on? And 
That yeah, but that one is in Svalbard, and it wasn't taken on a phone because I don't think I even had a phone that took pictures then. Okay, um, that was on one of Jeremy Jones's further trips. I, I shot a lot of the Jones, tri- a lot of the trips on the Jones trilogy, the T- Teton Gravity movie uh, projects, the split ball projects, and that one we were camping in Svalbard, and we were snow camping for two weeks out 10 hours north of Longyearbyen, the only town on the islands. And on our way to reach our snow camp, where, where the snowmobiles would leave us for two weeks, we reached the edge of the glacier that we did, were trying to climb up with the snowmobiles to set up our camp. And we couldn't climb it because it was, it was a lot warmer than it should have been in April with this climate change and so on and so forth. And so we were trying to climb this glacier. We couldn't get up there with a sled, and we had to set camp on the on the ice, on the sea ice, and it's full polar bear feeding zone. So it was actually about five degrees uh, warmth, uh, cold warmth, or however you want to describe that. Five degrees temperature would be probably be an appropriate way of saying it. Celsius. And it was raining, and we were soaked. We were soaked through. We'd been snowmobiling 10 hours to get there on these touring sleds. And we just had to throw our, our tents up. It was about four in the morning or five in the morning. We'd sledded all night. It's like permanent. It's 24-hour light at that time of year there, just. And so, yeah, it was polar bear feeding area around there. There were, there were prints in the area. And our guide then had to, we, we, well, our guide had to sit up with his gun uh, and, and sit sit guard rather than stand guard next to the tents while we snatched about four hours kip before continuing trying to get up this hill with a sled. So that, yeah, that was from there. Quite an interesting, well, in, incredibly interesting project. Did you have any uh, closer encounters beyond the footprint? No, we didn't. We um, Luckily, I'd, I'd hasten <laughs> to add, yeah, probably for the best, but obviously we, we were all absolutely desperate to see polar bears in the wild but it is um it's not something you do lightly up there and so i i just reached down i I was just shooting it and i just reached down to put my put my hand in it just to give it scale these are massive they're like bigger than a dinner plate they're just like the biggest dinner plate you could have that's the size of their their feet and so these there are more polar bears up there than than humans in the town there's something like three and a half thousand polar bears and two thousand people live there absolutely phenomenal jesus um okay let's move on to the next photo i'm gonna it's really hard to choose because these are all really interesting um (laughs) i'm gonna go with i think this one just here which is actually the part of a magazine piece for a magazine that you do oh yeah okay um yeah which includes the the title this place of darkness and it says making the hardest call when there's no call to make. Yeah. So it's it's a bike laid down in the foreground, uh, very dark, moody image, a small group in the midground, and then in the, in the distance, huge, imposing mountain um, with with lots of cloud, looking lots very of, threatening. Yeah. It was pretty threatening. Uh, we were exploring the most southern trail in the world, which is on an island off Tierra del Fuego. It's a Chilean island called Navarino. And there's a circuit called the Dientes de Navarino, Navarino Teeth, 
which is uh, the most southern waymarked hiking route that has really just two or three people on average uh, daily hiking it uh, through their summer months, the southern hemisphere summer months. And I'd, I'd actually looked into this, this trail a couple of years earlier for and, and dismissed it because I'd come across accounts that you need to wade across these estuaries and carry your bag above your head and it's only three degree water and all these things. And I just thought this is absolute hell, you know, carrying everything on a bike for this long on a rudimentary trail. But for some reason, I decided we would try and go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I persuaded a few people. So that shot there was the most southern point we got on the trail. We didn't do the whole loop. We rode in and we spent two nights camped out on the trail at that point. And that's the pass that we got to, uh, the most southern point on the trail. And it was, it, yeah, it was, a, it, it was definitely, it wasn't so much that it the actual location was challenging it is incredibly challenging there it's the it's sub antarctic island it's roaring howling winds the weather changes at the drop of a hat i mean a dozen times every 10 minutes the weather just changes so that that day there had gone from sunshine where the lads i was with were jumping in the lake that we were camped by and skinny dipping right up to just full blizzard in Oof. in the space of about an hour Jesus. and we were we were pinned in our tents for a little while with this blizzard rage and then it turned to hail and then it eased off and we ventured out and we got up to that pass. So we were camped, camped out there for two days. So we did a three-day excursion on that and then explored another trail further around the island that we got a boat to. And the reason I, I actually called the story that I wrote, that's Bike Magazine, which is unfortunately, it was one of the most amazing uh, mountain bike magazines ever. It was an American, it's an American magazine. Uh, that got the plug pulled on it uh, last year, unfortunately, after oh. I don't know, 20, 30 years in the business. Um, it's beautiful, Mag, and they ran the story uh, that I wrote was actually, I uh, called it This Place of Darkness. Is that right? I think. Uh, yeah, that's what it says here, like that. This Place of Darkness. Yeah, and that was, um, that was kind of a reference to um, Fitzroy's who was the skipper of the Beagle, uh, who they obviously explored the Beagle Channel uh, with Darwin on board in 18, I'm hazarding a guess it was 1830 or 1870. I should really know this. And he suffered, he actually wrote, um, he wrote about the place being really dark and really sinister. And he he was a he was a, his skipper. He's been catalogued to uh, to suffer from depression, and he wrote about that place as driving his depression. And the reason I called it this is wasn't so much that it was um, necessarily the most challenging place we've ever ever tried to do a story. It's that the we had an incident on that where we lost. We had one local guy with us um, join us for the trip. He's the only mountain biker on the island. And he jo- so he wow. was mad excited to join yeah. us on this trip, uh, Chilean guy, and he he struggled a bit with the fitness um, where the rest of us were pushing through, and we got caught in a blizzard exploring another trail from the most southern settlement on the island. It's the most southern settlement and permanently inhabited settlement in the world. This tiny village that we got a boat to, and we were pushing back from that up this trail 
that comes comes over a mountain called Mount Misery. I mean, we should just look at the map and know if a place is called Mount Misery, we just shouldn't go there. (laughs) Oh, it's such an invitation though, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, it's a gauntlet being cast down. And well, the long and short of it was that we got caught in these huge blizzards on the top of this ridge, huge whale-backed mountain ridge that we had about 15 kilometers. That's all to get to get to the end and get off. But we just got swamped in these blizzards that were howling winds, uh, proper subantarctic weather, and we we uh, unfortunately we got we got split up and we lost the we got lost the lad, and it was probably one of the darkest. Um, experiences i've had on on any of our trips where we really feared for his safety Mm. quite drastically and where we were stuck in this position where um we needed to get off that mountain but we couldn't get off any quicker than we could push our bikes and battle this blizzard ourselves and descend and try and get a, a chilean police helicopter out to look for him but when we finally got to the town it was it was about nearly midnight and we they they couldn't fly that night, and the, the lad, much to his uh, much respect to his perseverance, he he managed to work it out, and he dumped his bike on the ridge and climbed down the hillside himself to get out wow. of the wind, and just spent all night circumnavigating the coastline because he knew he couldn't get lost like that, and he was sheltered in the forest. It's in t- the most intense. Uh, deepest, darkest, tangled forest you could ever try and work your way through, especially trying to drag a bike through, trying to downcline this mountain out of this blizzard. So I, I called the story that because it had it had um, some very, very dark moments in it where we we actually feared for the kid's life. And yeah, it's not something, it, was, it became a huge learning curve for me. It wasn't that long ago, but it just showed that once you've done enough wild adventures you can you can get a bit uh uh blase about the safety mm, side and the, uh, i got back from that and i just bought a, a spot locator emergency locator beacon straight away which i take on every trip now and it's got worldwide mm. coverage press a button they will find a way of getting you out of there you or anybody else that's in trouble and it's one of the most valuable pieces of kit i now carry yeah it's yeah so yeah that's that one that's us looking across all my group looking across into the void wondering why the hell we're up there now, everybody kind of enjoyed that bit it was blizzards and all it's a hell of a shot thank hell you of a shot. there's something there's something really poetic about the, the bike just laid on the floor in the foreground as well um yeah i really feel like yeah, the whole it, story is in that one image yeah thank you very much yeah it's it's finding those elements it's building those elements into the shot that have that story Without the bike, then it doesn't have that reference. If the bike was leaned nicely against a post, it's too relaxed. Nobody leans, yeah. really leans a bike yeah. against a post when you get to a spot. You just <laughs> arrive there, you're knackered, you've had it on your back, you just chuck it on the ground and walk up to the viewpoint. And, you know, everything else is staged if it's anything different. So that was just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Final image. Also, just to clear up, yeah. the guy the guy came back, right? So he, he turned up. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, sorry, yeah. Back. He did. He turned up. He had he had category two um, hypothermia. He ended up in Oof. hospital for for a few hours to get hydrated and warmed up Warmly. and so on. But luckily, but it was all good in the end. Um, good. Yeah, yeah. All good. Um, final image. I've gone for something very different actually, um, mm. because I just I'm really curious about it. It's this image, um, <laughs> which I'm going to let yeah. you describe. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, it's I, it's one of those pictures that I, I I remember saying at the start of the, this poddy that I love to do pictures that, especially on street or travel, that beg they they sort of convey an idea visually, but there's something else going on in the picture that really challenges the initial conception of mm. what's going on. So if you look at that picture, so it's a it's a load of people in the foreground. It's a crowd looking towards a burning building in the background and there's a so there's a building on fire in the background a huge fire raging and it's quite it's obviously in a city and the, but then the the person there's a person with a kind of a Ar- arabic palestinian looking headscarf like a shawl kind of thing they're wearing mm. and so instantly i think most people would look at it and say would instantly say I, I quite I actually have that picture on my wall above my dining table. It's a strange picture to have there. It's one of the proudest pictures. And it's a lot of people would look at that. I'll say to them, Where do you think that is? And they'll say, Well, it's in it's Palestine, right? Or it's the it's the West Bank, or it's because of this headscarf just sets it, gives it this idea that it's somewhere in the Middle East and there's trouble and there's fire and there's a crowd and there's all this. But then you've got this person. Also, they've got two fingers in the end, a proper British way of saying, up yours over there. I've got two fingers in the air, you know, off to it. And that itself is can only be British. That's the whole point of that picture. Like, mm. So it's right in the heart of London, in Trafalgar Square, actually. And that the fire is the South African embassy. It's been set on fire. Uh, it was at the time of apartheid, and there was a lot of very, very strong anti-apartheid um, feelings. It's funny now. I mean, everybody, you talk about apartheid, you talk about politics and things, everybody, it's almost like it's a you know, it's a done thing that obviously apartheid was wrong and so on. <laughs> but at the time, you, you can't believe how many governments, including the British government, were not willing to to put sanctions in place to try and bring apartheid down in South mm. Africa. And so you, it was, it was just accepted, you know, that South Africa had apartheid and, and this is where they're a trading partner. So we won't do anything about this. So anyway, so that's actually a, that was actually a demonstration that got pretty heated about the poll tax, which was a a pretty unjust kind of broad sweeping tax that um, Margaret Thatcher at the time brought in. It was very, very uh, unpopular. And I think this demonstration was kind of one of the nails in a coffin of bringing her down and getting her outing her or ousting her rather uh, because it was just the biggest demonstration London has ever seen and it blew up into the police moved in and and tried to move everybody and tried to do it in a quite a physically confrontational way and it just blew up into the biggest one of the biggest riots that London has ever seen that just tore its way through the West End and well, through through the centre, through through Mayfair and through all the expensive areas, but that shot is is right at the start of the trouble and and South Africans tensions are building and South African embassies set on fire. So, but the main thing why I absolutely love it, apart from being there and being opposed to the to the tax and the government at the time and my politics, so I'm proud to have been part of that yeah. uh, part of that movement is. I just love this way. It just has this out of context, this traditional British thing with, you know, surely we don't do this sort of thing in Britain kind of attitude. But but I just love the the sort of juxtaposition in that picture. 
And that's what I sort of mentioned early on in the podcast is I, I look for scenes that, or I like to document scenes that play out in front of me that are, that are not necessarily as they first seem. You know, I just entered a picture into um, one of the competitions called Home. The competition was titled Home. And one of the shots was, actually, I shot it in Lebanon. Uh, we passed an old building that was um, a shell, a carcass of a building that had been completely riddled with bullet holes and bomb craters in it and things like this uh, from the Lebanese war. And there's this huge scene of just this empty shell of a building. And then in one window, one empty window down on the left, there's just two bright pink towels hanging up as curtains in a window. So the whole building or bits of the building are now being used by Syrian refugees who've crossed the border and are squatting this building, this disused building, but got nowhere else to go. So it's just this scene that, again, it has a, it has a scene played out in front of you, and you, but your eye is drawn towards this, this little hint of colour on this otherwise grey landscape of just, is that hope, is it desperation? Uh, just, again, it's just about taking pictures that, that beg questions, and that's what drives me in photography, mm. whether it's on an adventure or if it's doing stuff for clients I want that question might be, could I be there? I want the viewer to say, could I be in that situation? How would I deal with that situation? Can I find my own version of that situation at my level, which is what I want people to do with adventure? Find your micro adventure, do your thing. I love it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to bring us sort of wrap, wrap up the show with, with a couple of quick, yes. very quick Please little statements. Um, the the first is something that we've not done before, so it, this is p- perhaps you know the first and last of a new segment that I'm calling the barber's question. Uh, mm-hmm. I was having a chat <laughs> with my barber uh, at lunchtime to get today um, about the fact that we were going to be recording this podcast, and yeah. um, this is an opportunity for you know someone outside the industry to ask someone inside yeah. the industry the question that I might not think to ask. And it's true that I wouldn't have thought to ask us. So this is the barber's question. Um, you've been to plenty of dangerous places. Mm. Would you go and do an expedition in a ghost town? And if so, what would you be hoping for? <laughs> I love that. I would definitely <laughs> be up for a ghost town expedition. And uh, we did do um we did do a bike trip in in northern Spain years ago uh, in north of Madrid. Uh, quite a long way north of Madrid, that rides through a lot of ghost villages, and we bivvied out in a couple of them overnight. And they were villages that were really, really, they were occupied until the Spanish Civil War. And then after the Spanish Civil War, a lot of people left and went to cities to find work because it became quite a poor area, the rural areas. And so we actually did, uh, or were sleeping out in ghost towns. I quite like the ghost town thing. I'm quite, I find them quite enchanting. What would I look for? I would really be driven to try and document kind of uh, the futility of of us trying to to exist in certain places where nice. clearly as a species we're we're not really perhaps we're not equipped to do. That's one of the projects I my own personal project I've been working on for a few years is I've been hoping that travel opens up so I can continue going around in some of the places I shoot mountain bike 
and adventure trips is I, I often stay on for two or three more days to go and do my own thing. And I've been documenting our sort of incursion into zones or territories or climates where as a species without technology to hand, we wouldn't last five minutes. And I'm finding that really fascinating to document and ways, ways of documenting things. So I would look for, yeah, I would be looking for trying to tell the story of why it's a ghost town. Why did that? Why is, why is it a ghost town? And why the hell have we decided to sleep amongst it? <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Okay. Final segment. Um, I think he'll be really pleased yeah. with that answer, by the way. Um, final segment. Uh, three recommends. We asked this of every guest. Um, I could have warned you of this before, but I think I probably forgot to do so. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so we're looking for three recommendations from you. One is a film or TV show. One is any music recommend. So that could be a song or it could be an artist. Um, and then one Tricky. other, which is literally anything. That could be a book, another podcast, um, an activity, literally anything you want to recommend. So it's a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a Desert Island Discs trio, this, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah. it is. So number nice. one, film or TV, right. what would you like to go for? Yeah, with? I'm going to go for either Koyana Skatsi. They did another one called Power Skatsi. And look those up, spelt with K-O-Y-A-N-A-S. Q. It's a Hopi <laughs> Indian word, which means life out of balance, or and it's from okay. the 80s, and I remember seeing it in the 80s at the cinema. It's an amazing film. To it's a bit dated now because it's a lot of time lapse um, stuff, but it sort of shows that both that and power scatsy. One one actually is a Hopi word for a life lived out of balance with nature, and the other one is a life lived uh, where we're taking more than we we really should be taking so there but there's a lot of incredibly beautiful slow-mo and time-lapse shots and worth worth looking those up that would be my film off the top of my head uh had a big influence on me and i think it's quite poignant at the, as we at the sort of climate that we're in right now and this was the 80s these films mm. were made Awesome. Uh, number two, then music. 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 Well, that's probably a tricky one because I'm, I'm a big old punk rocker. So uh, most of the stuff that, that I still listen to is pretty underground, kind of old school punk stuff. Really. Um, uh, how, I'm, all right. I'm going to throw you into. How about listen to Amoebics, the latest, or the last record they did. Just look up Amoebics. A M E B I X. The LP called I am terrible with with names, but that one it gets it's quite metally that one, but it nice. will, it, hopefully it'll rock your boat. <laughs> it will draw me into the world of punk rock. Everybody says rock your boat nowadays, don't they? Still, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, and your other a final absolutely Crikey. anything you want. You know what I was saying about how restrictions help creativity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, one other one other thing. Um I don't know. I would how about just find yourself a good recipe for hummus? Nice. Because because hummus is food of the gods. It is the best food on the planet, full stop. 
never mind your arty farty hummies that you get in the back of the supermarket, or with you tainted with sun ripened tomatoes and whatever. Just get a good old traditional hummus going, and that that'll see you right. As good as a cup of tea and a good biscuit. there we are big thanks to dan for coming on and i hope that's inspired you with as much of a thirst to get outside and plan something exciting as it has me and maybe pick up your camera too perhaps for the first time let us know if you're enjoying the show leave us a review we'd love to hear from you hear what you're enjoying why you're enjoying it or what you're not and why you're not i've been your host marcus brown and we'll see you on the next episode of the osprey podcast gonna go make some hummus now so uh Bye.